as we were collecting data in Miami, that was a big part of the data collection effort because we were using photos both to kind of get a, a, a scene for what the, the flood event looked like where the data collection was happening, but we also used it as a backup for some of the data. So we were using, I'm honestly sitting here now forgetting what these were called, but we had these little devices for measuring salinity and it was possible to take a picture of the result so that you could have a backup in case something went awry with the you know data entry. Welcome to another episode of the Mapscaping Podcast. My name is Daniel and this is a podcast for the geospatial community. My guest on the show today is Kurt Menke and he is an absolute expert in QGIS. Kurt's actually been on the show before. Back in episode 50 he came along to introduce us to the QGIS project and tell us about the history of it and where it might be going in the future. On today's episode, we're going to continue the conversation around QGIS, but we're going to look at some of the apps that live in the ecosystem around the project itself. So in particular, we're going to look at an app called QField and an app called Input. And these two apps will help you if you're doing a field campaign and need to collect data. They will also help you display data or display and collect data, I should say, in an offline situation. Kurt will also talk us through how we set up a QGIS project to use with these apps and how we might synchronize data that we collect in the field back to our centralized database. So it's a really interesting episode. I hope you enjoy it. Just a few quick messages from me before we get started today. Um, in this episode, Kurt shares a, a lot of great resources, a lot of great links. And if you go along to mapscaping.com podcast, you can join one of our email newsletters. There's two different options there. Join whichever one that suits you and I will personally send you all the resources that are mentioned in the podcast episode today. That's mapscaping.com podcast. That's it for me. Really hope you enjoy the interview. I'll see you on the other side. Hey, Kurt, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for taking the time to, to come back on the show again. So the first time you were on the, the, the podcast here, we were talking about QGIS. So for the listeners that haven't heard that episode yet, I would strongly advise you to go back and listen to that before you listen to this one. So today we're going to be talking about, again, the, the QGIS project, but we're going to be talking more about some of the apps that, that live in the ecosystem around QGIS and mobile data collection and offline GIS. Before we dive into all that, could you just give us a brief introduction to yourself just before we, we, we get stuck into the, to the main topic today? Sure. Hi. It's nice to be here again. I really um, enjoyed being on the podcast last time and it's exciting to be asked back. So uh, I run my own GIS consulting business named Bird's Eye View. I'm located in Albuquerque, New Mexico in the United States, and I've been working for myself for many years. So we're in the, the world of COVID-19 now, which actually hasn't been a big change for me because I work at home already. So that's been not a big transition for me. And I do a lot of, um, a little bit of everything. I do some cartography. I do some geospatial modeling. Um, and I used to do a lot of training and teaching, and that's been put on hold except for a series of webinars that I've been going through with one of my recent books, QGIS for Hydrological Modeling. My uh, co-host is my co-author, Dr. Hans Vanderquast, and we've been holding weekly webinars going through that book chapter by chapter. So that's, that's the model going forward is trying to get some more training online. And my other endeavor that I'm involved with is something called the Q Cooperative, which is kind of an informal umbrella of myself and several QGIS core developers, spatial analysts and trainers. And we're 
working together to provide QGIS support services for people who need new features or custom plugins and things like that. And part of the reason I ask people to give a, an introduction of themselves is just to establish the fact that, that they are someone worth listening to. And you've definitely done that. So appreciate that. So as I said before, we're going to be talking about mobile data collection. We're going to be talking about offline GIS uh, solutions and of course this has got something to do with QGIS. So as far as I'm aware, there are there are a couple of apps out there. When we talk mobile and QGIS, we've got something called QField and we've got something called Input. Could you briefly describe what those two apps are and what they do? Sure. Yeah, they're they're very similar in many respects. They both are based on QGIS, and they both work off of a QGIS project file and honor all the symbology that you've set up and any project settings that you've set up in that QGIS project. And so they, they both have the same paradigm where you, um, in one way or another, get that project file and the data onto your mobile device with the app and open that QGIS project file with the app and go out and collect data and then somehow get it back onto your desktop or um, wherever you're, you're storing your data at the end. QField is developed by a, a Swiss company, OpenGIS.ch, and it is, for the time being, of only available for Android. The other one, Input, is developed by a company out of the UK called Lutra Consulting, and that is now available for Android and uh, iOS. So um, those are the, the two options that we can talk about. Okay, so, so that's the app side of it. But of course, we, we need a, a QGIS application to create this project file to export it over to these apps. Could you just give us a brief overview of what a QGIS project looks like and how we might set it up if we're going to be using it later on to do uh, field data collection? Sure. So you know, obviously, it goes without saying that when you're going to do some field data collection, you have to do some project planning and think about what it is you actually want to collect. Both of these apps will allow you to collect um, points, lines, or polygons. So um, you first have to set those basically empty layers up and populate those with any attributes that you want to collect. So for example, if you're going to go and collect trees on a, on a farm or something like that, you would go and maybe set up a column for species. And then maybe you also want to have a column for the diameter of the tree and maybe you want to have the you know column for the data collector who who is doing the collection for that particular tree and the date it was collected so you might have you know at a very minimum four or five attribute columns that you're going to add to that point layer and then QGIS has attribute forms and there are these widgets that go along with those so if if one of your columns is for the the date and time you can set that up as a date time column and you can even set up defaults for different columns. So uh, a good default for a time column for field data collection would be just the function now, which would auto-populate that column with the current date and time. So you can set up some really nice intelligence for your data layers and columns within QGIS before you get it onto the device. And, and some more examples of those, there's another widget called value map that would let you create like a pick list of the different species that you wanted to collect data for. There's one called a checkbox. So you could just check something that's um, true or not true. You can also set up constraints. So you might, maybe there's a specific question that you want to ask only if 
you're mapping an oak tree. So you could set up a constraint in there for that column so that you'd only see that if the answer to what kind of tree is it was oak in a previous question, and then that question would appear. So you can do quite a bit of customization for your what you'd call your data collection form through these QGIS widgets ahead of time. Okay, so all of that, of course, is trying to sort of restrict yourself or apply the same rules to your data collection as what you've got in another data model, I'm assuming. Firstly, you want to make it easy for the user you sort of add some logic for them. Like if it's a tree, then it has to be one of these trees. If it's a date time, I think it should be right now because it's now that you're collecting the this information. And I guess with a checkbox, something like a checkbox, it's, it's perhaps a, a true false somewhere in the background in the database. And of course that makes it really easy to get the data back into the database because you've, you've got a structured model that you're working with. You said a lot of really interesting stuff there. One of them that really stuck out for me was you need to create these empty data fields and then sort of build up this database. Can I also use the, these apps to, to collect data for existing data layers? Yeah, certainly. There's, there's no reason you couldn't use existing data layers. I just think a more common workflow is for people to, you know, starting from scratch is to start with a, a, a brand new layer. But for an, especially for an ongoing data collection effort, you, you may be using the same layer for months, collecting the same type of data um, and just adding to that existing data set. So that is certainly a common workflow as well. Okay, so let's say we're preparing this a data collection campaign, and it's gonna parts of it are gonna be done offline. We're restricted mobile uh, data access. Are there any special things we need to think about in terms of offline when we're thinking about creating data models and and preparing this Q, QGIS project to be exported out to the to one of these apps? One of the things QGIS has are these things called map themes. So map themes basically let you kind of filter what layers are going to be represented on your map. People use these in QGIS for creating like an inset or a locator map, for example, where you only maybe want the study area to be on the locator map. And so you set up a map theme that is just your study area polygon. And then the rest of the layers become the main map. And you have two map themes, locator and main map in that example. So you can also do this to create an online and an offline version of the map, especially people will often want to use a base map, like an open street map base map, for example. And in that case, what you can do is generate MB tiles or vector tiles for your layer. And you can set that up as your offline map theme. And then the one that's being pulled directly via the web from OpenStreetMap could be your online map theme. So when you get out into the field, you can choose which map theme you're going to be working with, depending on what your current situation is. Okay, so that, that tiled layer, that'll sit somewhere on the device itself, and, and then that'll be the background for the, the data collection. Yes, absolutely. So typically, you know, you'll set these data up, and it's it's common these days for people to use the geo package format to um, for, for most of their vector layers. You can also in there have a folder for your MB tiles, and you would basically get all of that data and your QGIS project file onto your mobile device so that you have it all there too. And, you, and when you open it up on QField or input, it's going to look exactly as it does in QGIS desktop. 
Okay, so so let's let's talk a little bit about how we get this project file onto one of, one of these apps. Now, do I open the app uh, through a USB connection and then just push it over, or is there some sort of synchronization process that that I need to be aware of? So yeah, this this is one place that currently these two apps differ. Like I said, the, these two Q field and, and input are very similar, and they're both undergoing rapid development. So even specifying a difference is um, a difference today, and it may not be a difference a month from now. But as we sit here today, if you're using QField, there is a QField Sync plugin to QGIS, which basically allows you to set up your QGIS project, use that plugin, and it packages up your project into a geo package, into a folder that you specify. And then you basically hardwire your uh, mobile device to your laptop and drag and drop that folder for your project onto your mobile device. If you're using input, there is a plugin that comes along with input called Mergin, M-E-R-G-I-N. And this is both a plugin, but it's also a cloud service that Lutra provides. And so you can go to the Mergin website, which will be in the show notes. I'll make sure you have that. You can sign up for a free account, which comes with 100 megabytes of storage space. You create a login and a password. And when you install the plugin, you log into your Mergin account. And you can then, it shows up in the browser panel of QGIS as a data provider. And you can basically synchronize your project through that Mergin data provider, and it will upload your project to your cloud account. And that Mergin cloud account is the middleman between your mobile device and your desktop environment. And it allows you to synchronize your project back and forth between the two environments. That sounds really, really, really smart. I really like this idea of something doing the, the work, you know, making sure that the, the project is synchronized, that the data is synchronized. So I completely understand when I have made my QGIS project, you know, I'm exporting that data. Let's say it goes through merge and over to, over to input, for example. Uh, I get that side of the process. Now, does that synchronization, does that still is that does that still work when it comes the other way? Because what I'm thinking is you're out in the field, you're collecting data, perhaps you're updating existing data. How do I get that back to my centralized database? Is is this the the job that Mergen does for us? Yeah, that is exactly what Mergen does. So it, it works the other way too. It will allow you to um, open up QGIS, right click on the Mergen provider and synchronize your your project from your cloud account to your desktop. And some of this depends on how you have things set up. So obviously, it's also possible to have all your data in an, an online PostGIS instance, for example, and in which case the synchronization wouldn't really be necessary. But if you're working in a, a, a file, you know, a flat file format or, or with geo packages, Mergin provides that functionality for you. And you know, I mentioned that these two apps are very similar. So this is a case where I do know that with QField, OpenGIS is working on a QField cloud service. So this is something that I imagine will be coming to QField in the coming weeks and months. Um, it's just not here at the current time. 
So I think this is going to solve a lot of problems for a lot of people. I, I personally have had have had that experience where I've had people working in the field and they go away. It's an offline environment. They really want to take their data with them. They want to be able to update it. And it's been an absolute nightmare trying to sort of synchronize that data back into a centralized database and, and sort of maintain that single source of truth. So this sounds like a, an incredible solution for this. Um, can you give us some examples of, of where you've seen this working in the wild? Yeah, absolutely. My, my personal experience comes through a project that I've helped develop for the National Library of Medicine called Community Health Maps. And this is a program that we set up for public health workers, which is getting to be apropos these days with the COVID-19 crisis happening. We go in and we, we show people how to, um, who are public health workers. And so that means that they are not typically people with a GIS background or GIS training. And we show them how to use things like QField or input for field data collection, and then how to use QGIS to work on an analysis of those data or a map afterwards. And one thing I'm impressed with is that these are intuitive enough, both of them, that I can, in a four-hour workshop, train public health workers who have never used any of this, how to set this all up and work with it and go out and collect some data and come back in and map it. And so it, it is definitely something that is um, pretty accessible. So one of the interesting projects that we worked on in recent years was in Miami, Florida, where sea level rise is becoming an issue. You might say, well, how is that a public health issue? Well, they have these things called king tides there, where these are the highest tides of the year. And at high tide, it can be pretty alarming where 9 a.m. in the morning, you're standing in a neighborhood, and by 11 that morning at high tide, you're standing in knee-deep water in the middle of the street. So there was a local university there, Florida International University, had set up a data collection protocol, but hadn't really figured out how to get all this collected in a GIS format. And so we went down there and basically took the data collection protocol and set that up in QGIS. So we could use one of these apps. I honestly don't remember which one we ended up using in the field. This allowed us to train people working on the front lines with this to go out and collect this data. And what they were collecting was the depth of the flood water. They were taking a, a water sample so that they could test for bacterial contamination like fecal coliform and also the salinity of the water. And we showed people how to collect data on this and then afterwards make maps that showed for a particular community how much fecal coliform is in that flood water that their kids are walking through on the way to get the school bus in the morning, for example, how much salinity is in that water that's flooding their front lawn and things like that, and really creating pretty intense issues. And, and it was very successful down there, and they still have those programs running two years after we were down there training them. So that sounds like a really, really big data collection campaign. So I'm assuming there were multiple individuals out there collecting this kind of data and synchronizing back to a single database, a centralized database. Um, were there any issues around so many users like updating data on a, on a regular basis? No, we had basically um, a data manager who was at the time in charge of merging all of that together and managing it. So there was one person at the university who was kind of the, the front person for managing that. At the time, there wasn't the merge in functionality to clone and share a, a project database. So kind of had to do it more longhand at the time, but it would be much easier today. 
So we, we could assume now that, that Mergen would take care of that side of it for us if we were doing the same exercise today. Yeah, you would still want someone, I think, to be the data manager, to be in charge of that process and and um, make sure that the incoming data was um, accurate and, and you know see who had collected what, when, and make sure it all gets merged successfully. But it would be significantly easier at this point. I've just got a couple of questions uh, about data, and I realize we're sort of going back in the conversation now, but it just occurred to me that, that one of the things I've seen people be really interested in doing when they're when they're doing data collection problem, uh, projects is taking pictures of things like this is exactly what it looked like you know an image is worth a thousand words they would really like to be able to take a picture of it and write a comment about it or add that as an attribute into the table is this something that's possible through these data collection apps yeah absolutely they both allow you to take a, a photograph so you you basically set up a column in your gis layer ahead of time for the photograph and um, in that widget setting, you set that up as an attachment. And then um, when you get out in the field, you can take a photo and it basically will have a path to the photo on, and you can uh, upload all that and, and use it. You can also choose to pick a photo from your gallery. So you may want to take a photo of something um, with another app on your phone and maybe, like you said, mark it up, put some text on there or circle something of interest and then um, upload that as the photo. So that's also possible. These sound like amazingly flexible apps and a system in general. So I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm really excited about this. I can see so many potential amazing geospatial field projects going ahead because they have, because people now have access to this kind of, um, these kinds of solutions. Yeah, I actually should add real quick that as we were collecting data in Miami, that was a big part of the data collection effort because we were using photos both to kind of get a, a, a scene for what the, the flood event looked like where the data collection was happening, but we also used it as a backup for some of the data. So we were using, I'm honestly sitting here now forgetting what these were called, but we had these little devices for measuring salinity. And it was possible to take a picture of the result so that you could have a backup in case something went awry with the you know data entry. So we had a backup photo of the salinity meter, and we also took a picture of the water sample. So we had three pictures for every point that we were collecting information on. So th this brings me to another uh, question uh, about data. So on the, if I go to the QField website, for example, it says GPS centric, which makes perfect sense, right? Your your, your phone has a, a GPS built into it, and so and, and that's probably the way we're getting our location. I realize there's other ways for phones to locate themselves, but let's just assume it's running solely off a of GPS. That's where our source of location is coming from. Now, we know that with phones, sometimes it's not the most accurate positioning we get. Do we have the option here to attach other perennials, other instruments to the phone? Will, will, they, underst will they be understood by, by these apps? Yeah, I think with these and any other data collection app, you always have the option of using a third-party Bluetooth GPS receiver. Um, and there's quite a few of those on the market that you can find on Amazon and, and elsewhere. And some of them aren't even... You know, there's a lot of them are fairly affordable and are things that you can strap onto your wrist or your pack or something like that. And I think the advantage for most of those is that they will definitely increase your horizontal and vertical accuracy, but they also often offer better um, signal lock. So if you're 
in a park with with tree cover and you don't have a clear view of the sky some of those will lock onto the satellites a little better than your phone would and so you can definitely get better results you know that that's it's a good point because whenever you're out collecting data accuracy is should be a concern um something you need to think about and you know phones use this hybrid locational technology where you can it will locate you by triangulating off of cell phone towers if you're in a Wi-Fi network, it can locate you that way. That's slightly more precise. And if and then it has the GPS, the assisted GPS chip, and that's the most precise. And so if all three are accessible at the same time, the phone uses all three technologies in some kind of algorithm to try to pinpoint your location. So there, there's a lot of technology packed into these little mobile devices these days that we sometimes take for granted. And you need to know, you know, I, I, I see surprisingly few studies on the accuracy of cell phones. And every year the you know, we have updated phones and it changes. So it's constantly improving. And I think, you know, these days it's safe to say that most of them are getting you, you know, within several meters of your true location, but it's sometimes difficult to know exactly how accurate your phone is. And so you can always use a third party Bluetooth GPS to improve that. Yeah, that, that sounds like like a really good solution. And I c- am completely with you there. Like phones are pretty amazing. When we start to talk about the kind of technology that's being packed into them, it's, it's really impressive. I'm hoping that some stage we'll get to we'll get to the stage or or come to that sort of recognition that calling a phone is kind of like calling a Ferrari a cup holder, because yeah, we we make calls with it, but I mean it can do so much else. Yeah, in fact, I think being a phone is what they're worst at. Honestly, <laughs> um, they, they do they do many things better than actually function as a phone. And in terms of GPS, a lot of the modern phones not only have the you can use the the G, GPS constellation. They can also use the GLONASS constellation, and we'll use both of those, I think, collectively to improve locations. So the GPS chips are getting better and better each version. So I just want to try and summarize now for the listeners just quickly, because I think you, you've given us a lot of information here. At the start, we, we talked about these different apps that we could use. You've covered uh, how we set up a QGIS project and, and get it ready to export into these apps. We talked about the different kinds of methods and systems you might want to use to, to synchronize data over to the app from the project and and back again. And we've talked a little bit about the functionality that in the apps and the, the way we set up data ready to be collected and that kind of thing and think about our data models. So you've given us a ton of value already. I just want to touch on what this app can do. Can it do anything in, in terms of analysis? Is there any sort of snapping capability? Is there anything sort of built into it that's making sure that we're adhering to the rules of data collection, that we're collecting valid geometries, for example? Let's see. That's a good question. I think that's one place where at the current time, QField is a little different than input. QField does have, for example, a split tool that lets you cut a polygon that you've created in half or or carve it up in some way. It also has a measure tool. It has some, some compass integration. So I know people, if you've used something like Google Maps on your phone, you'll see a, a little kind of a, a what am I going to call it? Like a cone of visibility. Like what, It'll show you which direction you're facing. And so QField also um, has that kind of compass integration where it'll show you which direction you're facing as you're moving around. I do not believe that there's any snapping, but I think as soon as I say that, someone from Lutra or OpenGIS is going to say, oh, no, no, it does that. 
it's, if it doesn't do it, I imagine they're working on it um, because both of these companies are improving both apps continually. But I don't believe there's any of that kind of geometry snapping capability in either of them. Of course, you could always f- fix it after the fact fairly simply. And I, I know that with, um, for example, if you're collecting points, fairly certain you can move you can move the crosshairs on both of these so that let's say you want to map something that's behind a fence or you're mapping a, a bird nest and you don't want to disturb the nest but you want to map it and you're in the street next to the tree where the bird nest is you can choose to take the point you know anywhere on the map that you're looking at so it is possible to kind of offset a point or something like that to to put it at a desired location that you can't get to for example that sounds like a much better solution than standing on the bird nest, waiting for the GPS to recognize your location and then collecting the point. I'm pleased someone's thought that far ahead. That's, that's really good. Hey, I've just got a couple more questions uh, about this but before I let you go. And, and one of them is, what's the most exciting thing about this for, for you personally when you think about how far we've come? Because this has been a problem for a long time in the geospatial world when we talk about data collection as that kind of online, offline thing. And I know that we're moving to a war, towards a world where we're more connected than we've ever been. So meaning that we're going to be online way more than we've ever been. Uh, is this you know, is this still an exciting thing for you seeing these apps, seeing this technology? Or are you sort of sitting back going, oh, that's nice, but it's going to be redundant in a few years? No, I think it's incredibly exciting because, you know, I'm I'm an open source advocate and it's only been within recent years that, that, that these kind of apps have come onto the scene and, and been usable. And, and so it, it's really exciting now that you have not only QGIS with everything it is, but you can also use these in concert with QGIS to go out and collect data and that they perform as well as any proprietary data collection app I've ever seen. To me, it's you know part of that democratization of technology where you, these are available to anyone who wants to use them. And the, and for our community health maps project, what this does is it it makes solutions that are scalable for a, a crowd fund a crowd data collection effort um, where we can. At one point, we actually had residents of the community who weren't even public health workers. Who wanted? Who saw us out there and wanted to get involved? And we had a workshop one one evening in Miami where we invited people from the neighborhood to get trained in this data collection protocol. And they just installed the app and went out and collected data, kind of being supervised by um, some of us who who were experts. It was, it was so empowering to see these people out there collecting data to something that was personally affecting them. And that kind of scalability is only really possible when you have something that is free and open source. And and easy to learn. And I think it's, I mean, of course, it, it sounds like it's a, a simple kind of operation standing out there collecting data. But, but if these things, if we're going to collect meaningful data, if something that we're going to be able to use later on and make decisions based off that, we also need to to do it as accurately as possible. So I think it's amazing that these technologies are so scalable and are so accessible for people. But I think it's also important to remember that probably that was only possible because there were experts like you helping these people out and sort of showing them the way. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Because yeah, what I just said belies the, the fact that months of work had gone into setting up the protocol and the tests and the training materials and all the rest. So obviously that was a unique situation, but it was still a a really interesting 
proof of concept. Absolutely. And I wasn't trying to be critical at, at all. Um, I was just trying to point out the fact that I, I think that we, we still need to, there still needs to be a certain amount of guidance, I, I think, with, with, with these kinds of projects. But the fact that it was possible, that it is accessible to people is absolutely amazing. So one last question before I let you go. So when you think about the technology that's at play here, is there anything that you think that, that's missing? That, what is this app screaming out for? What would be the next feature that, that you would add to it if you could just wave your magic wand and do so? Well, I think both of these apps could could probably will be working on more kind of collaborative editing where that, that kind of um, building, a, a you know, having teams, for example, where, where you have just you know better better synchronization and, and better control over or over a group of people all working off of the same QGIS project, for example. I think that will that kind of functionality is going to is is fairly new for merge and input, and it's going to improve and probably show up in Q field in the near future. So I, th- I think that is a, a real need people have because usually collecting data for an organization is going to you know you're going to have multiple data collectors out there so that is kind of crucial <clears throat> and i know that lutra is also working on metadata support um, within input so i think you know being able to um, have some kind of metadata access in these is is going to be important for the resulting data so but yeah, but, but I, th- I think they're becoming fairly fairly mature and I, I think the thing that i appreciate the most is that both companies are being really responsive to um, reported bugs and things like that and new versions are coming out quickly. The way they're set up is is really ideal, the fact that they're plugins and apps because they're not tied to QGIS versions in that way. So the plugin can be updated and come out as often as it needs to, irrespective of what version of QGIS you happen to be running. I, so I think that kind of separation and having it as a, a plugin is a really great example of um, why plugins are useful. Kurt, I, I really want to thank you for taking the time to teach us all a little bit more about data collection. You know, there's different kinds of open source apps that we might want to consider for our next data collection uh, project and just teaching us all a little bit more about um, the, the QGIS project in general. So thank you so much for your time. Before I let you go, where can the listeners go if they want to reach out to you and, and learn more? My website is birdseyeviewgis.com, and people can also visit communityhealthmaps.org. Um, there are some blog posts, for example, one on um, input and one on QField up there, and there's also one describing that Miami project. And I can be found on Twitter at Geomanky. Thanks again, Kurt. I'll be sure to link all those in, in the show notes for people. Thanks. Well, I, I really hope you enjoyed that interview with Kurt. Um, like I said, before the interview started, Kurt shares a lot of great resources with us and a lot of great, great links. I'm happy to pass those on to you. If you go along to mapscaping.com podcast, there's a couple of different email newsletter options there. Choose whichever one fits you. And I will personally send you an email with all the different links and resources that Kurt mentions in the interview. And that's it for another episode of the Mapscaping Podcast. My name is Daniel. As always, it's been an absolute pleasure being your host again this week. Um, For those of you that are enjoying this podcast, if you have a friend or know someone who you think might benefit from hearing this, please share it with them. I would really appreciate it. And as always, you are more than welcome to reach out to me on social media. You can find us at Mapscaping on Twitter, Facebook, and and Instagram. You're also more than welcome to connect with me on on LinkedIn. I'm easy to find. Just search for host of Mapscaping Podcast. There's only one. That's me. I would love to hear from you. Okay. See you next week. Bye.